Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Episode 279, Ram Das, Psychedelics, and the Mystical World of Richard Alpert. How are you guys doing today? We got Allison from Milwaukee Ghosts and of course, Wendy. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Happy New Year. Doing great. Oh, it's 2020, yo. Yeah. yeah. It's our first weird discussion Unbelievable. I remember when I thought 2000 or 1999 would be something. <laughs> now it's 2020. Yeah. What happened? When we're talking about, um, uh, we're talking about the topic this week. You know, I was thinking of, I was thinking about that specific kind of thing in the passage of time. So today we're talking about the psychedelic explorer and new age philosopher guru um, Ram Das whose birth name was Richard Alpert, born in 1931 to a Jewish family in Massachusetts. And uh, he eventually became very famous uh, for a couple of things. Number one, he was part of the LSD research at Harvard in the early 1960s. And then he wrote a book called Be Here Now in the 1970s, where he uh, synthesized uh, Indian and uh, Buddhist spirituality, uh, along with Christianity, Judaism, taking a little bit of the Gospels and the Scriptures and all that kind of stuff in the Old Testament, mashing it all together into like a Unitarian kind of uh, New Age mysticism slash spirituality. It's a and big God smoothie. Just say it. It is a big. It's a big God smoothie. Um, I hope so that's, you have your glass straws, everyone, because we've got a big glass, a big God smoothie for you. <laughs> well, and so he, you know, he died December 22nd, age 88. He had lived the past like 30 years in Maui, Hawaii. And uh. so uh, got to enjoy some, at least he got to enjoy paradise for a good good portion of that life. Yeah, that's a yeah. very good portion of your life. Yeah. yeah, it's easy to be a Buddhist when you're staring at the beautiful uh, mountains or the beaches of Maui. But also, though, is it easy to be a Buddhist when half your body is paralyzed and you can hardly speak, as what happened to him after his stroke yeah. in 1997? So the good also comes with the bad. Very deep, Mike. Um, well, I just mean, <laughs> the, reason, the reason I was thinking about time passing, though, is because, so from, you know, 19, uh, in the 1960s, when the they were doing this LSD research at Harvard. Um, so we just go back and real quick. So he, uh, you know, he was a psychotherapist who was also taking psychotherapy himself. And he was always someone who felt that um, his traditional religion, because he was raised, I mean, fairly secular Jewish, uh, he didn't feel fulfilled by the spirituality um, that he was getting. And so he thought, well, maybe I'll learn more in psychotherapy. And he talks about this in his book, Be Here Now. And so in the middle, he would take, he was taking psychotherapy. So he was, you know, not only was he, uh, you know, a member of the psychotherapy club for men, you know, he also was a psychotherapist <laughs> himself. 
And so he started, he was really unfulfilled by those things. And he said that when they started taking LSD and psilocybin uh, in magic mushrooms, um, that he started to have these spiritual experiences that he'd been craving all of his life. Yeah, and I mean, we are really seeing a psychedelic renaissance right now. Uh, So, I mean, in the 50s, and then a little bit later, before the war on drugs was announced, there was, you know, tremendous research into psychedelics for psychiatric use. And huge breakthroughs were achieved. But then something happened that shut it all down, and we'll have to talk about that a little bit later. But thankfully now, things seem to be uh, opening up again, and we can look at these substances with um, a clearer view and, and see that, you know, they are something that can really help us at this time when, when we really need to reconnect with the planet. Well... Yeah, the thing is, I really, hippies, man, like they've got a lot of good ideas, but the fashion and the music just never got me, you know, oh because the thing is, I get it, you're all high and a guitar solo goes on for 20 minutes, but the guy's just noodling on a pentatonic scale, it's not even that interesting, I guess in a med- it's a meditative way. 20 minutes of Jerry Garcia farting out a guitar solo. But the thing is, is that what I really like about the hippies is that they were searching for a spiritual experience. And you know, and, and you think about that generation, um, they were looking for something deeper. They didn't deny spirituality. They said that they wanted to have a deeper relationship with it. And when I think about the time between 1969 and 1989 and the beginning of the new age movement but you also have books like be here now that affected a lot of people um and you had psychedelic explorers and people who were interested in learning more about uh the human relationship with the divine you know there was a like a golden age of it and then when you think about 1999 to 2019 have we had a golden age or just a bunch of Silicon Valley people that like to get a little extra high and can afford to go to South America and do their little trips? Yeah. Right. Well, you ask a party. And I mean, that's that's the kind of thing, uh, you know, that needs further discussion. But, you know, I, I think I think, you know, the the hippie gurus, I mean, they were doing it, too. You know, Ram Das or Richard Alpert himself. Um, I mean, he was. He was able to go to India to have his, ex- you know, spiritual experience. I mean, who can afford the plane tickets back and forth? You know, not to mention weeks and weeks uh, where you don't have a job. You're just, um, you're just like hanging around trying to find yourself and reach your. He was a Harvard professor. You assume that he did get, was able to save some money. And a psychotherapist is expensive now. It's expensive then. Right. So I mean. But the thing is, the stuff that those guys did, that uh, Richard Albert and, and Timothy Leary did, some of their research was very interesting. In fact, um, they once tried to do research with J.B. Ryan himself, the, uh, the man behind, uh, well, him and his wife, were behind the, uh, the Duke Ryan Laboratory 
on ESP and paranormal research. And so uh, J.B. Ryan came, went to Harvard uh, from uh, North Carolina, where Duke is. So he goes up to Boston to try to do some ESP research with Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert. And so they all take some LSD for a couple of days and they start, you know, they think they're going to have this serious ESP research, but then none of the results are usable because they couldn't stop laughing the whole time. <laughs> That's embarrassing. So, yeah. You know, so Side the effect. whole thing is, yeah. Because the thing is, there was this group of people. So Aldous Huxley is in there. He's, uh, you know, he's one of the founders. Aldous Huxley, he's the guy that wrote Brave New World. And the Doors the of Perception. Yeah, and, and the band The Doors is named after Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception. I mean, LSD is the drugs in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, you know, that's what they're talking about, um, is that this mind expansion that comes from well, what happens with a psychedelic. And so when they have this Harvard psilocybin project, and funny thing is when they first go out to try to uh, – you know, discover the source of psilocybin because they'd already LSD. We think we talked about this in an earlier episode. LSD is synthesized in the 1930s by Albert Hoffman on accident almost. And so then, you know, if they're looking for a natural, like where does this stuff kind of come from naturally? And they hear about magic mushrooms in Mexico. And so now, here's the thing where you can say that Richard Albert was a, was a rich guy, was a rich, privileged man. Um, he did have his own plane. What? So he was a pilot and he had his own Cessna. He had a Cessna? Yeah. Oh, my God. And so his, fa- I mean, his father was the, like the president of the New Haven Railroad. So it's not like he did. I mean, he grew up in a, in a, a well-to-do family. And so he did have this. But I, I don't think that makes his message... Um, any less potent uh, just because he had his own plane. Well, you know? I'm not saying that. I mean, his, his message was uh, appropriated from others. And I think that um, you can get the, the message from him or many other people. And, you know, where should you spend your money? Maybe not on a book that he wrote because he's got enough money. So that message is powerful, but um, I think there's other gurus out there that, um, that you know, definitely deserve your money more. <laughs> See, I completely disagree because I tried to listen to other gurus talk and they're not as interesting. His stories, he was a good storyteller. His lectures are interesting. So what connects with me? Like, okay, have you ever read the Eckhart Tolle book? What, what, yes. Wendy, what's the big Eckhart Tolle book? Uh, something in the now. Wait. The power of now. It's, it's just, it's like be here now. The power of now. Is it the power of now? Yeah. I mean, Eckhart Tolle, obviously his writing's pretty good, but you hear him talk. It's the <laughs> oh, yeah, power of it's now. Horrible. It's the Eckhart Tolle book. And you hear Eckhart Tolle talk and it's like listening to you. It's like, it, it's like yes, listening to. It sounds like a Muppet. I have an eight hour like lecture from Eckhart Tolle that I, I made it about halfway through and I'm like, that's it. I can't take this guy seriously. <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's that's the thing is like you have to be what works for Richard Alpert, I think, was that he was a great medium for this message because he could impart it to the hippies in the 1970s in a way that maybe somebody who was not familiar 
somebody who's not familiar with the American audience could. Yeah, I mean, he did serve as a bridge, you know, uh, between that culture and our own. I mean, it might have been a problematic bridge, but, you know, I can agree that, you know, certainly um, he reached out to another culture and he was able to deliver the goods uh, that they have to give. And if you read Be Here Now, I think you see that he, he like he, he, there's the Buddha and then there's um, something from the gospel and then there's something from uh, Madame Blavatsky. So, you know, you have all of these things kind of brought together in a way that uh, is synthesized in, in a new direction. And so that's where I think that um, spiritually he could be the most interesting because when you read the book, he's quoting Jesus and then he quotes the Buddha and then he jumps to somebody else and then he jumps to somebody else in a way that um, I think a Western audience can now feel like, okay, I get this story now because you compared it to something I had in Sunday school. Yeah. And I, mean, and I think that no question. that's in, important. And he... Uh, Anyway, but we'll get there because I want to talk more about the Harvard Psilocybin Project because it makes me wish I went to school <laughs> between 1960 and 1962 and had these cool of professors. Um, so the thing is, when they're go like, so Richard Alpert uh, wants to take his plane that he's going to fly himself. Um, and in, in his book, he talks about it like he, like he didn't know how to fly that well yet. But Timothy Lee is like, we're going to go down to Mexico in a few months, and we're going to find the psilocybin with this other guy, uh, Greg Wasson. I uh, think Gordon Wasson. Gordon Wasson. Yeah, so Gordon Wasson did write um, a whole uh, article for, I believe it was Life magazine, which was was really you know life changing for many. But he wrote it about magic mushrooms, and unfortunately, though. The people that he he was with in uh, Mexico, um, they really, really regretted turning him on to the mushrooms, and they thought that that he he actually effectively you know killed the power of the mushrooms. So I know well, we were talking off air. I was talking with Wendy about. Um, Ram Dass and how uh, he went to India, and then he appropriates all this knowledge. And what did what did uh, the people in India say to him? Oh, when they told him. Well, the he secrets? said that he went there, and they they said, you know, this is secret, sacred knowledge. Don't share it with anybody, you know. And then he came back and shared it with everybody. <laughs> but his his rationale right. was that he just right he felt that it it was his knowledge now, and he had to share it. And that was what he, as an individual, right, absolutely felt was his just you know his soul was urging him to do so. But also, like um, some of these things are they don't like you don't own knowledge, <laughs> you don't own spirituality, you can't copyright it. Um, no, you can't. I mean, but I mean, is there? <laughs> well, I, no, I agree. Like he may have like if he made a promise, then he betrayed it. But at the same time, the idea that the people in America should not be exposed to psilocybin um, and maybe to its life-changing healing effects, or I'm, let's call it psilocybin instead of magic mushrooms, because every time we say that, I just feel like we sound like we're talking like drug dealers. And that's, <laughs> and that's my whole problem with the hippies, is that it's like it's awesome when you're looking for a spiritual experience, but so much of it um, kind of boiled over into hedonism, which I'm, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, I guess. But 
when you go into heat, and I think Ram Das and Richard Alpert was as much of a um, perpetrator of that as anybody in the in the hedonist aspect of it, because he was just like, well, we got high, and we got high, we wanted to stay high, yeah, right, all the time, and you know, it just when you say you're looking for a religious experience, but at this, you know, but you're then you're just partying, I guess, or whatever. It kind of takes away some of the like, is it really a spiritual experience or are you just someone who wants to feel high all the time? Yeah, there's a difference. And right. And so, um, you know, you think like, well, maybe they wanted to do a little bit of both. Um, but they, you know, they were studying. Uh, and I had never heard this particular term before. Uh, entheogenic substances. Oh, yes. And theogens. And so, I mean, that makes sense because theo, you know, theism, uh, God, and entheogenic substances are substances you take in order to have a spiritual experience. And that's going to be peyote or ayahuasca or LSD, <laughs> man. So, okay, let's get back to your story because I want to hear about the the plane trip to Mexico. I just wanted to um, insert this here that, um, so Gordon Wasson, he's the one who originally uh, went down to Mexico to, you know, discover the psilocybin mushrooms. Ah, discover, there's that word again. Um, To appropriate uh, magic mushrooms from, you know, that, that shamanic culture there. And um, so, and I know about it because um, of a Milwaukee connection. Um, we have um, we have the Milwaukee Public Library here, or I'm sorry, the Library Institute, too. But the Milwaukee Public Museum is the one I met. I'm I need to mention right now, um, and it its um, director, um, former director, haunts it, um, and his name is Stefan Borhage, and he was very into mushrooms as well, and he actually um, was a, was a, um, he was um, in co- contact with Gordon Wasson. They shared lots of research, and uh, in the Gordon Wasson archive, there's lots of of letters, like hundreds of letters between uh, Borhegi and Gordon Wasson uh, about this mushroom research. So uh, I'm definitely going to want to delve into that soon. But uh, so Gordon Wasson went down there and uh, he met this, this Mexican shaman named uh, Maria Sabina. And she shared with him their sacred rituals of the mushroom. But then he would write this big expose in Life magazine. And then people from America and all over wouldn't stop uh, coming to Mexico and to discover the mushroom. And, you know, the, it just became too much. And she actually said um, before Wasson, nobody took the children, that's what she calls the mushrooms, simply to find God. They were always taken to cure the sick. And she felt that, that, with what they were doing, they were actually um, killing the children, and they they weren't be used they weren't being used in the way um, that they were intended. Poor little mushroomy children. Sure. Yeah, poor little <laughs> mushroomy children. I mean, it's it. The thing is, that chick's high too. Wow. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, let's talk about it. All these people are high, and they're talking, and they're taking shrooms, and some people are going to be. Um, 
special about it or, you know, they're going to be protective of it. And other people are going to be like, this experience should go to others. But also we are dealing with everybody taking drugs. And speaking of, somebody that went on that plane with Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary was Arthur Kessler, the author, who was... um, uh, he's the guy that he died and he left all the royalties and all of his fortune to the Kessler Parapsychology Unit in Edinburgh, Scotland. So like the last place you can be, uh, you know, um, you can get like a degree in parapsychology in the, in the world left because the damn atheists have made it so we can't have parapsychology degrees at regular universities. Um, that's Arthur Kessler and... Shrooms did not do well by him. Yeah. While, while while Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert were were tripping holy balls. <laughs> okay. Arthur Kessler just got sick. Oh. So the poor guy um didn't even get to have a good trip, man. Yeah, and and the thing is, I mean that's that's um that's a monumental thing that came out of it. You know, the chair over at Edinburgh University, that's that's where you can become the last Jedi. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> right, the true. way I look at it, you know, that that that's the place where you go to receive the sacred knowledge. I mean, I'm opening up here and telling, uh, you know, like my deepest feelings about it and kind of making fun of it at the same time. But I I, I do think that, you know, that was, you know, something huge that, you know, maybe came out of some of these experiences. Um, and you know, it's good and bad that came out of it, of course. Um, and interestingly, you know, his experience of just getting sick on the mushrooms maybe speaks to his mental state because he he was a he really suffered mm. um mightily and terribly uh from depression. And it's interesting now um, you know, like Maria Sabina said that the children were taken to cure the sick. And now we seem to be getting back to that in um, in our modern age. So I'm hoping that things will turn around. And the way these mushrooms uh, help turn us around um, is by maybe curing our, our modern epidemic of depression. Well, you know, and I, and this is, this is going to sound uh, not a little weird, but I do think that Part of our modern epidemic of mental illness is the gap between uh, that between maybe how people used to have more spirituality in their lives, and now it's replaced by what yeah. video games? I mean, I don't. What do you worship now? Or yeah. not even worship, but how do you feel close to nature or close to the planet or close? That, that was a good thing. About that. I mean, the hippies had some really good ideas. They just couldn't play guitar. <laughs> um and uh and tie-dye it just i don't know man wait, wait I know, a second Allison, you'll fight me you'll fight me to death on that i know i wear tie-dye like you're probably wearing a day you're wearing a tie-dye wearing, shirt right now I, i'm not but i was wearing one earlier um <laughs> I, I wear one every day when i teach in china over the internet but um anyway i gotta say um that oh what did i have to say i had to say something oh Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix. Now that man could play guitar. You know, I don't... Okay, you're right. I just, I guess I don't think of him as much of a hippie. <laughs> oh my God, he was at Woodstock. 
Ever see those pants you wore? But he was a hippie, just, so there's your exception. You're like, hey, you know what? I'm gonna take that back. I just keep thinking of jam bands. It's my that is okay. my bad. Right. That, and I could be poisoned by hundreds of gigs that Wendy and I Wendy and I have been um, jam bands appropriated music from the '60s, and now they use it horribly, uh, inflicting it all on us um, at shows. So the thing is, though. Um, the idea that having a like using this as a shortcut to a spiritual experience may not be the healthiest thing in the world, but it also showed Timothy Leary and Richard Albert um, that and Aldous Huxley particularly that these things that you know that spiritual experiences were real. Where in the past you might have had to um, meditate forever, do the rosary for hours on end, kind of thing to have that religious kind of ecstasy. This was a way to shortcut yourself to it. And I think it showed them that these things were possible. And so they had this thing, Good Friday Experiments. Good Friday, 1962. Yes, at the Mars Chapel. I love that experiment. Yeah. And so um, a graduate student in theology at Harvard Divinity School, he designs the experiment. Walter Mankey, right? Yeah. And he wants to see whether psilocybin uh, would act as an uh, entheogen, in religiously predisposed subjects. So, can if you are can you have a you know a religious experience while you're you know on psilocybin um, if you're a Christian or something like that? So he gets twenty graduate degree divinity student volunteers from Boston. He gets them in two groups, double blind. Half the students receive psilocybin, while the other uh, half receive niacin. So imagine getting the niacin. You're like, oh, man. That's like eating That's like eating total for <laughs> breakfast. That's your part of the experiment. <laughs> you might get a little hot. That's about it. <laughs> right. So, um, but the thing is, it was an active placebo. So niacin produces some physiological changes. So it's an active placebo. But you, like you said, getting a little hot. Mm-hmm. So that's what happens when they took this niacin. So then you might feel flush or something. So almost all the members of the experimental group reported experiencing profound religious experiences, providing the empirical support that psychedelic drugs can facilitate those. Yeah, and let me just interject. I read something about it recently, and now, because it was written by the guy who, you know, wasn't sure at the time, you know, that he wanted to commit to the, yes, this was a meaningful um this was, you know, a meaningful um, experience with God. You know, he didn't didn't want to uh, admit that wholeheartedly uh, for whatever reason, but he's since come, you know, so many years later and written about it and said, yes. You know, so now everybody who took the psilocybin um, has had lasting changes from that one experience with psilocybin. So, so I mean, that's... Uh, you know, what makes you think that these things are, are powerful and that their research, you know, could show us something about, may mean that people are interested in having these kinds of experiences, whether they're through chemical substances or not. But, you know, so what's happening in Harvard and, and then Richard Alpert in his book in, in Be Here Now, I mean, he goes and says that, uh, you know, he talks about like talking to one of his friends that like disappears off a couch when he's on LSD. He talks about taking LSD for like three weeks. It's him and like two other people in a house. And he goes, the stuff that happened there, you wouldn't believe. (laughs) 
I wouldn't. He's like, I don't believe it. And, it, you know, he says that under LSD, people were able to read his mind. He was able to read other people's minds. That um, people were able to control his mind. I mean, that's also a sign of uh, schizophrenia, which obviously we don't know necessarily how psychedelics can contribute to that. We know marijuana contributes to it in if you're predisposed. But do psychedelic substances like LSD or psilocybin have the same effect? There's not enough research done on it yet. Um, but he talks about the different psychic abilities that get unlocked when these guys experience ego death, which is the big thing about these psychedelic substances. It's not just that you're feeling mellow or whatever. It's that you feel the disillusion of the self, that you are no longer, uh, I'm no longer Mike, you're no longer Allison, you're no longer Wendy, that we're all one consciousness, man. And that, you know, we can communicate to each other without the physical restraints that the ego puts on us. That's right. And it's, it's now been called the default mode network. And this, this is a reason, too, that it's been used um, to help people with depression, for example, because it, it stops that tyranny of the ego, of the default mode network, and lets you get into the nitty-gritty of what's gone wrong. And so, but the thing is, I mean, this idea of the um, mind control thing, I mean, the CIA, we've talked about this before in their MK Ultra experiments, the CIA thought that LSD right. could be a wonderful brainwashing tool in order yeah. to be able to get people to do what they wanted. And there's... <laughs> Um, Sh um, Shane Moss, uh, who has um, a great uh, podcast and uh, is a, I would say he's a psychedelic, um, he he's a psychedelic comedian. Um, he says, you know, that- <laughs> What does that mean? He just gets high and tells jokes? Pretty much. Just laughing at his own jokes? Pretty much. Right. Well, um, See, he, it's an easy he gets target. high and then tells jokes about it. And in, in, in fact, he's got a-, a his own documentary on Amazon right now. But anyway, um, my point is that um, he said <laughs> in his one of his comedy bits, he talked about, he's like, so, you know, everybody is using these drugs to get closer to God. And then the U.S. then the U.S. It gets the U.S. And, and we say, how can we weaponize it? <laughs> right. Can, but can we kill people with it? So, um, you know, you know, the idea, though, is that it backfired. Uh, it really backfired on them. Well, right. So the MKL, like they weren't able to use it for anything, you know, useful or anything. But um, there was a group called the, uh, I think it was called the Human Ecology Foundation. Yeah, I'm sorry, the Human Ecology Fund. And they were a CIA front organization mm. that was sponsoring some parapsychological studies at Oxford in the late 1950s. Where uh, they were, you know, using LSD or whatever for psychic experiments. And, um, you know, then also uh, they were, you know, interested in what uh, these guys were doing at Harvard. And so they actually were in communication with um, Arthur Kessler. Uh, and, and that they were kind of using, trying to use him um, 
to get into the Harvard psilocybin experiment and everything. So I thought that was interesting that it didn't even kind of like the CIA also was there. They're like, hey, you guys are studying this. Great. Now, you know, can we how can we get your research? How can we direct your research in the way of controlling minds to fight the, the red menace? Yeah. Um, but it's interesting how they wanted to use it to control people, but it, it, like I said, it went entirely the other way. And, you know, maybe that's part of what resulted in the war on drugs. Oh, no. You know, you can't um, control people as easily if if they've experienced psychedelics. But, right. you know... Um, you know, the one thing that, like, Terrence McKenna got wrong um, is, uh, I think it was Terrence McKenna, but uh, it, it was, you know, you're going to take this and, you know, you can't get people to um, fight your wars or you can't get people to uh, be part of your corporations. But we know that Silicon Valley has, uh, has embraced um, the power of psychedelics, so... You know, that part uh, kind of go didn't go the way that the gurus thought it would. Right. And well, but the thing is, is that it's not like, uh, you know, once they ended the Harvard psilocybin experiment, which eventually got ended by uh, the, the diet guru, Andrew Weil. Yes. You know, the holistic medicine guy. Yes, he's um, on like PBS like all the time, uh, you know, uh, with his lectures and everybody acts like, you know, he is a huge guru, uh, but he wasn't <laughs> so nice back then, was he? He's a rat. Well, I mean, think, okay, so it's not like Richard Alpert. I mean, he was already giving LSD to people he shouldn't have. He was already having sex with students Oof. and things like that. So it's, yeah. we're not talking about this guy's not a Mr. Innocence. He's not know. a saint. Uh, so he, that's the thing. I mean, he did do saint. valuable things. He's just not a saint. And he was giving uh, um, he was giving psilocybin to undergraduates. That was the whole problem. There was a policy at Harvard where you can't do that. You can give it to graduate students, but not undergraduates. And right. if um, if there were uh, if you were attractive enough, <laughs> you could get uh, psilocybin from um, from Richard Alpert, but Andrew could not. <laughs> Ram, Ram da, Andrew was like, no, dude, sorry. We can't <laughs> give it to undergraduates. Ram Das followed his magic mushroom around. Oh, That's man. Right. <laughs> and he did. But so then eventually, so Andrew Weil is the guy that uh, turns him in and says, look, they're giving LSD to undergraduates. And then Harvard shuts everything down. And so then Alpert and Timothy Leary go out to California for a while where they try to um, keep some of the studies going. And, you know, Timothy Leary eventually uh, develops that tune in or turn on, tune in, drop yeah. out <laughs> phrase in 1966. And so funny enough, he says that the person that made up the phrase was Marshall McLuhan. The guy that gave us the medium is the message wow. phrase. And uh, so Marshall was just uh, like, he was really into marketing um, because he was a media study kind of guy. And he starts singing like a little song going, psychedelics hit the spot, 500 micrograms, that's a lot, to the tune <laughs> of a Pepsi commercial. And then he goes, tune in, turn on, a drop out kind of thing. So Timothy Leary took that as a turn on, means to 
Uh, go within to activate your neural and genetic equipment. Tune in means to interact harmoniously with the world around you. And drop out means to detach yourself from your unconscious commitments. And so uh, drop out means like self-reliance and discovery of your own power. Right, and, so, and disconnecting you from governmental power. And and the thing is, is that uh, people, Timothy Leary even said this in his autobiography. He said, unhappily, my exclamations of this sequence of personal development are often misinterpreted to mean get stoned and abandon all constructive activity. And Because the thing is, it's not like these guys were, like, we all know druggies and stoners, and some of them may be spiritual explorers. And the others are definitely not spiritual explorers. <laughs> but when we're talking about Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, like no matter what we think of all of their ethical decisions and what they did... Um, they were definitely pushing the boundaries. They, right. They were at least... And that, that's the thing. That's what I admire yeah. about the, the hippie movement, that trying to reach the edge of human potential that I think is awesome. And that's what I was saying. Like When you think about the 1960s and what that kind of thing could be like one of the very positive legacy of the counterculture movement when we think of what is the legacy of the countercultural movement or the non-mainstream in the past 20 years it's not exploring the edge of spirituality in that same kind of way and so it made me almost uh nostalgic for something that i you know you're always like oh i really wish we had hippies like that again man oh yeah i mean i love that message but you know the what happened as a result, and maybe as a result of you know what the CIA found out too, that you know it's actually gonna gonna um, lessen your control, just like uh, LSD lessens the control of a person's own ego. It, it's also going to detach people from governmental control, and this is what led to the the war on drugs. Um, and, you know, there were people in these movements, uh, in the hippie movement uh, and in civil rights that, you know, were making major political and social changes and empowering these things. And so people like Nixon felt uh, that they were a threat. And so he couldn't he couldn't jail them for their beliefs and for the changes they were making. But if they were um, smoking reefer or if they were dropping acid, he could jail them for that and take them out of the picture. And that's really the reason for the war on drugs, because um, he wasn't he was uncomfortable with these political and social changes. And the only way he could do it is make these drugs illegal. And then he can put these people, uh, these political prisoners, essentially, in jail for drug crimes. Well, I mean, he, he did what um, Lyndon Johnson didn't figure out. So Lyndon Johnson just gave up. And didn't run in 1968 because he couldn't take on the hippies. They, you know, they ended. There was those. There was the riots, the Chicago Democratic Convention. There was all that kind of stuff. And so Lyndon Johnson did not know how to take on the counterculture because he didn't realize that if we could, we don't have to attack them. We can just attack what they've got. And oh, they got LSD. Well, we'll make LSD a Schedule One drug so that we can we can then start arresting the hippies. And so. Why the war on drugs ended up being horrible for uh, the United States of America, it was 
a fairly shrewd political mover, maneuver in 1970. Definitely. Uh, and, but but it was also terrible for, for psychology. And thankfully, hopefully we're coming out of that now. Finally, after all the Well, years. we can't even get legal pot in Wisconsin. So it's going to be a while. <laughs> um, but the thing I is, but know. I want to, you know, but the thing is, okay, this, I know we focused a lot on LSD because that's a lot of where the uh, psychic stuff comes from with Ram Dass and Richard Alpert. But I want to get to the fact that he, later in life, and as he went to India in the late 1960s, and he meets the Hindu holy man, Neem Karoli Baba, he's the guy that changed his name from Richard Alpert to Ram Dass. Um, his followers called him Maharaji. And it was him that also got him to change his mind about LSD even. So that he goes out to India, spends a long time there, meets this teacher, and then uh, the Maharaji seems to know that the previous night he was thinking about his mother, and he even says to him, your mother died of a spleen disease, and she died a few months ago. And in his book, he talks about, and um, he, he, you know, he talks about what was it that he, he was under the stars, he's outside going to the bathroom, he looks up at the stars, and he feels his mother's presence there. He's thinking about her, just he feels her presence like a ghost, and he feels overcome with love for his mother like she's there with him. He talks about this in Be Here Now, and then he goes to bed, and he has this powerful experience of that he thought that he had a visitation with his mother. And then the next day, the he meets the Maharaj, and he goes, your mother came to you last night. She died of a spleen disease six months ago. And so that, I mean, that's like meeting John Edward or Chip Coffee or whatever and having them say that to you. And then all of a sudden you're like, Chip Coffee, I believe in your magic <laughs> scarf. That's right. It's all real. So that's what, this is what changes him to like, okay, this guy, you know, this guy knows something about me that no one else could have possibly known. Then what happens is that He's got LSD with him all the time. I mean, he said that most of the time he, they just were smoking cheap hashish. Um, so they're all high all the time anyway. So let's not, get, let's not get away from this, that they're still smoking hash all the time. This is the 1960s. And he gives the Maharaji 900 micrograms of LSD, which, I mean, if Marshall McLuhan thought that 500 hit the spot, 900's really going to take you home. <laughs> and he spends all day with the Maharaji, and nothing happens. Like, the Maharaji's like, hey, man, like, it's... So he was... I'm already so, in Nirvana. <laughs> right, Ram Das was like, I, I, this guy was so, you know, in tune with spirituality and stuff and in tune with the oneness of everyone that LSD didn't have any effect on him. In fact, the Maharaji told him, love is a much stronger drug. Dude... <laughs> Man, um, I don't know. We're laughing about this stuff, but this is this is this is a powerful enough experience that it changed his life. It so that he started wearing robes, He's, like you do. I mean, <laughs> when when I laugh, it. I mean, it doesn't really mean disrespect. Like it's. it's oh, we could, I mean, we can make fun of him. He, I think he'd I be just, the first uh, one part to, of to laugh the, at the it. way I uh, I metabolize all of this. Yeah, no, he does. He does have a good sense of humor, or did have a good sense of humor about it, though. In his lectures, he would even like poke fun at his own experiences and things, and say like, "Yeah, you know." <laughs> right. Well, in be here now, you know, he talks about more of those 
experiences that happen that he would call psychic. And he says, before he went to India, he had two categories for psychic experience. One was, they happened to somebody else and they haven't happened to me, and they were terribly interesting, and we certainly had to keep an open mind about it. And that was his psychological approach. The other one was, man, I'm high on LSD. Who knows how it really is? After all, under the influence of a chemical, how do I know I'm not creating the whole thing? Because he said he had experienced, you know, the creation of total realities under certain chemicals. He said that um, he took a drug called JB318, which was when he was still uh, researching the university. He said he was sitting on the third floor of this building, and it seemed like nothing was happening to him. And into the room walks a girl from their community, and she's got a pitcher of lemonade, and she goes, would I like some lemonade? I said that should be great. And she poured the lemonade, and she poured it, and she kept pouring, and the lemonade went over the side of the glass and fell to the floor and went across the floor and up the wall and over the ceiling and down the wall and under my pants, and all of a sudden my pants were wet. Oh, and yes, the girl that's why your pants were Man. wet, because so of the lemonade. <laughs> okay, it kind of sounds like he wet his pants, but yeah, lemonade. at the same time, he had this hallucination. Where, you know, he felt, you know, so that's the thing is that he was saying up until when he thought about psychic experiences that someone being able to read his mind or understand something that happened to him that there's no possible way they could have understood. I mean, how would the Maharaji know that his mother died of a spleen disease? That was weird. That seems that that's what amazed him. It's because the psychic experiences he had before, he thought that he could explain them away through the chemical interactions in his head. And so that's what I thought, you know, was an interesting thing is that he's starting to experience psychic and paranormal activity, but it's not, this time it's not through drugs. It's from people who don't need the drugs. And he even talks about in the 1970s that uh, he got to a point where like the Maharaji told him that him and his group should no longer take LSD because the LSD, like they weren't using it. He said that they weren't using it correctly. That you're not, you know, you're not using it for spiritual experiences anymore. Now you're doing it just to get high. And that's, we're back to Maria Sabina. She said the, the self-same thing. Well, what they said was that you're getting addicted to the experience and not the actual, you know, you're, you're getting addicted to experiencing the feeling and all that. That's what you're addicted to, not the drug itself or whatever, but right. still. Well, and that's, I mean, the, and that, that's the thing. It's not being addicted. It's not like you're, like you're deepening your experience further and further, which is what they were, I guess, experimenting, trying to do. Um, but the, the gurus or whatever told them, you know, you're just becoming addicted to this experience rather than furthering. Right. And you're just doing it for like, like giggles, you know, for fun rather than, you know, for development. And, and I mean, today when it's used um, it, it, in the, you know, like psilocybin is used in, uh, you know, several university studies now. And the experience itself is awesome, but that's not where the work occurs. The work occurs later when you're not high, when you can integrate the messages that you received uh, from your experience. Well, you know, and, and that's one of the things, too, is that um, we're, we're talking about how uh, these things can change neural pathways, and it's a shortcut, Right? We're talking about the shortcuts to ecstatic experience. To, I mean, how can you be here now if you're always high? How can you be in the moment if you're always trying to get away from something? 
And I mean, he talks about that in the book, and he talks about that in different books. And that's where he, you know, while he still says psychedelics have a place, he's not like senor psychedelic like he was for a long time, where um, these guys were living most of their lives inside their own heads and inside this ego death uh, with this universal consciousness wherever, instead of actually living life on earth with everybody else. And I think that's one of the messages that you can take from these guys, that while there are gateways to these kind of experiences, um, we're also human and we have all the things that humanity implies and that's part of living here is being human and not always living at this stone, <laughs> I hate to say stoned level because it's- Well, it, this, the different planes, yes. right? They say, you know, there's all these different planes and you, you're in them all at the same time and being human is one of the planes. So that's part of the, as much as you can gain from jumping from this human experience into other planes and, you know, whatever methods you use to do that, this in and of itself is also part of the experience. So don't overlook that, I guess. And I, I think, um, you know, that's that's a good way to put it. And when you talk about the planes, Wendy, that leads me to uh, what Richard Alpert and um, Timothy Leary did was that they were finding that when they read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the, uh, the Bardo, Thodol, um, they were saying that the stuff that they describe in the Tibetan Book of the Dead was much like what they were experiencing when they were taking uh, LSD. And so the Book of the Dead is supposed to be this guide through uh, consciousness after death between when you die and when you come back uh, on your next go-round. And so they were getting that through their ego death when their um, selves were dying. Yes, but the bardo is an illusion. Right. So, I mean, they even use some... I think the Beatles even quote... Uh, the uh, Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary Tibetan Book of the Dead and their song Tomorrow Never Knows. Um, they, they use pieces of it in there. And, but what I think is interesting is that um, you have the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you have what these guys experienced in LSD, and now we find out, research has shown, that when people die, a psychedelic chemical gets released into the brain to... Uh, and that's what people talk about in near-death experiences. That's one of the uh, materialistic scientific explanations of it because your brain is releasing a psychedelic chemical. But just think about that, though. Like, they're finding this, uh, and this is interesting. It's not necessarily a discovery, but it is the um, synthesizing between science and religion of, okay, now we are you know, ourselves— by giving ourselves these chemicals, now we're going through the same journey that is in the Tibetan Book of the Dead written hundreds of years before, or even, yeah, about a, several hundred years before. And uh, now, 50 years later, when people are doing research, they find that when people die, chemicals do get released in the brain that can induce these experiences. And so it's interesting that uh, the Buddhists had kind of figured this out hundreds of years before, but they just didn't have um, our chemical word, our chemical language to put onto it. Yeah, I mean, that's what's exciting, that things are coming full circle now, and we are realizing that there's scientific underpinnings to ancient wisdom, 
And how did they get there when they didn't have science? Right. That's that's a, a big question and, you know, something that we need to appreciate that there's other ways of knowing rather than science. And I think, I think you know, uh, Richard Alpert, I mean, what he did uh, was, you know, to bring some of those ideas to our Western culture. And, I mean, that that is a good thing that he did. Well, and, and he did it in a way where he could take things that we understood— um, or that people have, it's already been part of the fabric of their life. So if he's talking to a Jewish person, he can give them stuff from the Old Testament. If he's talking to a Christian, he can give them stuff that Jesus said. I mean, and be here now. I mean, half of it is quotes from the Bible. Um, even when he talks about like how you're, you know, how you're supposed to eat when you consecrate the food. You know, he's like, well, we already do this sometimes when we say grace, but... Uh, if you want to, here's a Sanskrit consecration uh, that you can use as well. And he like brings it all together in a way that synthesizes religions around the world. And so I think that is something that he brought that was unique. And he, you had to be somebody who was well-versed in those kind of things and had to be somebody who came from his background, went through what he did, and then went to India and stuff like that, and then came back to a sweet life in Hawaii until he gets paralyzed to be able to tell us those, those stories. And also, like, I would have never heard about this stuff, and I probably wouldn't be that interested unless I was, because I was interested in the stuff he did with Timothy Leary, um, because we all love Fringe, and, you know, who's the guy from Fringe but Timothy, I mean, it's basically based on Timothy Leary and Richard That's Alpert. That's right, Walter. Well, right, Walter Bell is completely based on those guys, and, and Fringe was a great show. Like if <laughs> if you don't if you don't know, uh, you can binge it right now and you'll enjoy it. Yes, Fringe is is, is a lot of fun. And, and it's Walter one of those sh- Bell was I just love him. I love that character. <laughs> right, he's a hero. But um, the thing is, unless I was interested in those people, I wouldn't have been interested in Ram Dass. And the first time I heard about Ram Dass was probably because I liked. Dr. Wayne Dyer. Yeah, that's where I heard about him first. Yeah. And Dr. Wayne Dyer is a guy that I li- I liked him because, he number one, he had a doctorate. He wasn't a... So the thing is, if somebody's like, like a guru or a mystic, I'm going to be like, what the hell? I'm just not going to... But if somebody at least has like, okay, they put in enough work to get... Because of your cultural... Yes, I am biased. <laughs> if you put in enough work to get a piece of paper from somewhere that takes 10 years... Then you have a better chance of me listening to you than somebody who's just like, man, I know a lot of holy stuff. <laughs> and and so so Dr. Wayne Dyer, I'd listen because I thought uh, that he had a lot of nice things to say. And uh, I mean, even Dad, the guy who's about as anti mystical as you can get. <laughs> I I don't think so. He, he had a he, co- he had a he, copy of your erroneous zones that he bought when it came uh, out. Nice. <laughs> Maybe he just read it, misread it. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think I think our father is is really spiritual. Like that time he just discovered crop circles like 10 years on. And I was like, like, they're all real. You know about these things called crop circles? <laughs> that was the best. Like, oh what? God. Where you been? Anyway. Um, Welcome to the party. So the thing is, right. I think there's a lot uh, of interesting um, implications in Ram Dass's work. And so much of it was based on dying. Like he had spent a good portion of his life 
um, trying to help people that were in the process of dying. He talks about that in, in Be Here Now a little bit, but he also just talks about that in some of his lectures where he says, it's, you know, we are so sheltered from death and that's not a particularly healthy way to be. And so try to, he would try to create communities for people that were dying in order to make them feel comfortable. And even, you know, when he tells like uh, fables, like Indian fables and stuff, it's about, um, like, I remember one of the stories is that the guy goes, well, it's just like throwing away an old suit. You wouldn't be upset if I sold the car that doesn't work anymore, is what the Indian guy, and it's like, so don't be upset. I'm not going anywhere. And so I think those kind of messages are really positive and we really need to hear them. Um, because they do give us a little bit of comfort uh, when it comes to that. Now, the fact that he also talked a lot about his channeling friend, Emmanuel. Oh, channeling. And, and that was one of the things, like Emmanuel says, oh. dying is nothing to be afraid of. Uh, or what oh, What was the big thing that Emmanuel said? Um, he even has a whole a tale about it, like dying. dying is absolutely safe. <laughs> That's what Emmanuel says. He goes, Daniel, dying is absolutely safe. And he says that, he says that in an article on the Ram Dass website. Okay. He also says it in this lecture That's from funny. 1981. And, <laughs> and people asked him because he did spend a lot of time with this person who channeled this, this, uh, this bodiless spirit named Emmanuel. And he, he just said, Emmanuel has taught me a great many things. He never said that, like, yes, this is, I totally believe in this guy or whatever. Actually, it was a woman at the time who was channeling Emmanuel. She died, and now it's a man that's channeling Emmanuel. But he found a way, I guess, to let go of his attachment to uh, BS. <laughs> so that he went with. But the thing is, like, so there are, obviously, there's questionable things, and there's, there's right. stuff that's good and bad about him. And you um, can learn from fools and from sages. And I do think, you know, like, oh, my God, channelers just drive me up a wall. But that's hilarious. Dying, what is it? Dying is dying perfectly is absolutely safe. safe. Yeah, dying absolutely is absolutely safe. Well, you have to hear it in context, though. To be fair, you have to hear it in context because he they talk about how we're all constantly dying. Basically, you know, our self is not the, the ego versus the self being the whole and everybody being one. And it's <laughs> it does sound comical on its own, but if you hear it like within the yes. context of the message, oh, no, the full I think message, it's, a great message, it's not quite as ridiculous. And I just think that's like funny for marketing. <laughs> but I think Emmanuel too, when I was, so I was doing research for the episode, I was looking for something that Emmanuel said that was totally stupid. Like just kind of you know, to blow it up, you know, like Emmanuel said, like, in 2014, we're going to have a great war across the... You know how they have apocalyptic messages and everything. But Emmanuel is mostly just that kind of new agey comfort talk. And in a time where a lot of things are negative or people decide to focus on the negative, uh, it's good to have a little bit of some of that feel-good kind of crap. And it does drive me a little nuts. And there's still a piece of me on the inside that's like, you guys. But... Also, I understand. Um, I mean, I have a three-year-old, so I watch Disney movies now. So I've probably <laughs> softened up a little bit in my old age where I, I appreciate happy endings. And I hope that uh, Ram Das, wherever he is now, or whatever plane of the existence he has evolved to, is having a happy ending. And if he wants to send us any psychic messages, uh, that would be great. I and, agree. He could haunt me at any time. Okay, so I'm going to do... So next time I meditate, and I try to meditate at least a few times a week. Um, next time I meditate, I'm looking for a message from Ram Das, And if he channels through me, I'll let you guys know 
What happened? Ram Das dedicated a huge part of his time here on Earth exploring spirituality and sharing his findings with the Western population. Keeping with the theme of looking inward, this week's song is something that might go well with a relaxation or meditation session. Hopefully you can listen to it while finding a little bit of peace in your own world. Here's an original Sunspot song inspired by Ram Das's popular book of the same name, Be Here Now.
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Man, and did we have a good time talking to our Patreons on January 2nd? Or was it just me, Wendy? No, that was a blast. It always is. It always is. It was nice to catch up with everybody and hear about how the holidays went and Mm -hmm. kick off the new year as we do, talking yeah. about weird stuff. And and we got some good suggestions for things to watch before the next Patreon hangout. So mm-hmm. make sure you check in on the Facebook group for that, if you're in the group. If you're not in the Facebook See You on the Other Side group, um, you should get it. And that's othersidepodcast.com slash donate is where you can share articles, you can make jokes, you can suggest episodes, you can talk about your favorite guests, you can suggest questions that's right. for guests coming up. Yeah. Um, and if you're not, well, then you're just S-O-L. Aww. I know. It makes me, makes me want to cry. But who makes me want to shout our awesome Patreons, Woo-hoo! just like Dr. Ned. Dr. Ned <laughs> contributes at the Patreon level where he gets a shout out in every single episode. Doc, you the bomb, yo. Thanks, Doc. And Happy New Year to you. And Happy New Year to all of our Patreons. You guys are great. We depend on you for the support, and we appreciate it incredibly. Now, if you freeloaders would like to join up, you can check, you can check that out at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Come on to the Facebook group and hang out with us on Skype, and we would love to have you and get your feedback on how we can see more of you on the other side. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. I wish this was I wish this was an old factory oh, podcast. No. <laughs> so <A> nosecast. Long. <laughs>